Yeah, it's quite amazing this benefit, and it it stands up to the level of a meta-analysis that you can you can do this, and the effect size is medium to large. So we're not talking about a small effect size; it's a medium to large effect size. It's enough. And bearing in mind this is anecdotes, I'm, generally I'm a scientist, but I have a lot of people tell me when they start taking it, they can see and sense a benefit, and they're seeing some improvements in it. And combine that with the clinical trials behind it to the level of meta-analyses and a plausible biological mechanism, I'm not negative on this supplement, like I'm on many supplements. I'm very negative on many supplements, but not this one. I think there's, there's something worth trying, um, experimenting with yourself if you think you might get some benefit from it. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers, to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi everybody, welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host Nathan Rose and I'm pleased to be joined again for a second time, Dr. Tim Crow joining us from Melbourne. Welcome Tim. Uh, Nathan, it's it's great to be chatting with you again on on the podcast. I always enjoy our very nerdy, in depth science chats about <laughs> all sorts of different topics. So thanks for having me back on again. Absolutely, my pleasure, and um, thanks for responding so rapidly. So you're, I think, to to set up the context for today, you're we're in different UV spots at the moment. Um, we're going to talk about skin health and potentially the effects of sun. And you're down in Melbourne, and I'm up in Brisbane, and it's uh, November, so I think there's a fair bit of contrast at the moment. What's it like for you down there? Uh, no issues with uh, high UV rates today. Uh, you can safely wander out um, without any sun protection, and you won't get sunburned in Melbourne, which is the case <laughs> for a lot of the time. So, yeah, it's yeah, very, yeah. very skin-friendly here at the moment. It's a bit, a bit different to where I am at the moment. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well. I guess we'll talk a little bit about that, that latitude effect as well on uh, how it affects you know, skin, UV, and vitamin D, and all sorts of factors. Excellent. So yeah, we're here to talk about skin. Uh, that what prompted me was I heard on one of your podcasts, your great podcast, you did a podcast a little while ago on collagen, mm-hmm. and it went gangbusters. I believe is that correct? Absolutely, went viral. I actually did two podcasts on that, and just huge amount of interest uh, in it. And if you just based upon your Instagram feed, everyone seems to be in a collagen these days. But when I started delving into the science, there actually was a pretty good story there which surprised me but i followed the evidence and the evidence was telling me one thing uh, that seemed quite positive so yeah that's certainly one thing i'm happy to explore today excellent so we'll look at collagen we'll look at other effects of nutrition on the skin particularly yes, yep. to combat potentially uv damage and aging yes, yep. and then we might look at uh, some effects of nutrition on potentially skin conditions like acne and, and eczema so maybe before we dive into the effects of collagen it might be worth just framing up a bit of a 101 of this, the skin and its layers and its function and maybe its vulnerability to UV and so forth. How would you describe the skin to an audience? Okay, just a, a very you know bit of orientation, a bit of basic skin physiology and anatomy. Our skin is actually an organ. It's, a, it's the largest organ in our body and about 15% of our body weight is our skin and all the layers. So it, it contributes quite a lot. Obviously, it's there to protect us from invading pathogens, from the environment, it's also there to regulate our body temperature, to keep moisture in, and of course, it has synthetic functions like production of vitamin D. So it's a very important organ. Uh, there's multiple layers. The, the top layer is, is the epidermis, and that's the, obviously what you can see and touch. And it has 
several sublayers to it, but the important cells in our epidermis are the keratinocytes, which produce keratin, so that gives hair and nails and skin its hardness, and also melanocytes, which produce melanin, which is the, the brown pigment that helps protect us against UV light. So this is the epidermis. At, at the bottom is called the, the, basal, the basal layer, and the keratinocytes are made there, and they move up to the top layer, and eventually they become, they lose a nucleus and they die and the skin flakes off. So when I say basal cells and squamous cells, I'm sure many of your listeners are automatically thinking basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma. So these cells or these layers where we see um, some forms of cancer forming as well. So that's our epidermis. It's there to protect us. Then we have the dermis and that is where most of the, the connective tissue is our sweat glands and our hair follicles and the key cells called fibroblasts which produce collagen which is the most abundant um, chemical or abundant protein in our body. And then underneath that the third layer of skin is our subcutaneous layer. So that's really the fat and all the, the blood vessels and so on. So that's about as much as I want to go into today no for our skin but that orientates you to the different cells, the different layers the importance of it, and also where things can go wrong as far as external influences affecting the health of our skin. Yeah, so let's have a look at that. So what happens, what's some of the hallmarks, say, of skin aging, wrinkles, UV damage, which layers are affected? Uh, all of them. So <laughs> uh, look, as we all know, as we get older, visually we can we can see changes. Uh, but what we're concerned with is slow, if we can slow the speed of that, well, that's going to be a good thing. You know, the, the whole entire nutraceutical, cosmeceutical, cosmetics industry is built upon skin because we can we can see it. It's a visual sign of aging. But inevitably, as we get older, our, our skin, and that, this is the dermis and the epidermis, gets thinner. We lose elasticity on our skin. So as we get older, it's a very simple test. If you pluck the, the skin on the back of your hand, it should snap back really quick if you're young and, and, and healthy. As you get older, it gets quite flaccid and it doesn't snap back because one of the proteins produced by our skin is called elastin, and that's involved in elasticity. Our skin dries out because we uh, produce less sebum, so we actually lose more moisture. And of course, because of damage, because of environmental pollution, because of cigarette smoking, because of toxins, because of the sun, that damages a lot of the key proteins in our skin. Obviously, the main one is collagen, if you damage collagen, that will promote wrinkles. So thinning of the skin, loss of fat reduces the, the plumpness of the skin. All of those are not good things, both cosmetically, but also for our health as well, if you impair the function of all these important cells. So that's a, a lot that's going on. Age is inevitable, but certainly there's a lot we can do to slow down that process both from a, a cosmetic perspective to look better, but also importantly from a health perspective to reduce damage to our skin cells and to reduce the risk of skin cancers. Yeah, nice description. So collagen, we'll move on to then. You mentioned a few times it's yeah very popular with uh, nutraceuticals and so forth. Yeah. Your podcast was, um, went viral. It's one component of skin but it seems to be a, a pretty vital component so yeah describe what is collagen and, and yeah obviously people ingest it as well 
looking at the research, it seems like even small amounts can have a positive effect. And yeah. Obviously, as you mentioned, the, the skin is a very large surface area, so... How does that work? Ah, <laughs> uh, look, and this is the thing. Well, well, we'll sort of move into that area. But the thing about collagen, 30% of our, our, our body protein is collagen. So it's hugely abundant. It's there as a very important connective tissue. And it is incredibly strong. It's a triple helix structure. So I describe it as like a, a rope where you've got all these intertwined fibers. So collagen gets its strength because of this structure. Now, one of the, the key vitamins, of course, needed to make strong collagen is vitamin C. If you're vitamin C deficient, you develop scurvy, you have poor wound healing, and that's because you don't produce this integral, integral strong collagen because we need vitamin C to make one of the key amino acids that you only find in collagen. And it's called hydroxyproline. Hold that in your mind for one moment. The thing about collagen, even though it's a protein, it's very unusual that really there's only three key amino acids that make up most of it. In that, it's going to be uh, a glycine. Every third residue is a glycine amino acid. And most of the rest is a proline and hydroxyproline. So again, we make hydroxyproline from vitamin C. So there are three key amino acids that really are a, a, what I call a signature of collagen. Now, there's 28 different types. The most common ones are types 1, 2, and 3. Uh, types 1 and 3, generally, they're found in your skin. You'll find them in, in ligaments, cornea, bone, and so on. Whereas type 2 collagen is the other most common one, and that's mostly found within our cartilage. So that's going to be you know, joints and bones and so on. So 1 and 3, fairly similar, mostly skin, uh, blood vessels, and so on. Type 2, mostly, mostly cartilage. And collagen naturally is, is in us, it's in animals, it is not in plants, there's no such thing as plant collagen. Um, but if you take collagen from an animal and you cook it, you boil it, you produce gelatin. So all gelatin is, is denatured collagen. So you just get rid of all that structure because you, you heat it right. and you, you, you can buy it off the supermarket shelf. And the thing about gelatin, it's great for making jellies because it is um, obviously not, it, it holds a lot of water uh, and it has lots of uses in cooking. But gelatin is just collagen that's been cooked. That's it. There's no, no right. other difference between it and collagen. Are there benefits that when we look at, we'll look at collagen in a moment? Are they yeah. interchangeable? Taking gelatin? Surprisingly, when I've looked at the research, most research uses hydro, hydrolyzed collagen, which we'll talk about very shortly, I'm sure. But from the small amount of research I've seen, there's no reason why gelatin shouldn't have similar benefits to hydrolyzed collagen. But the thing about gelatin is you just can't put it in your in a drink. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyone that's made jelly, we know that you, you heat it up and then it sets. So hydrolyzed collagen is much more popular because it's easily dissolvable in, in foods and in liquids, whereas gelatin it generally has more of a cooking use. But yep. from what I've seen, gelatin should have just as much benefit as hydrolyzed collagen. Because in the end, when you eat collagen, it is still digested by our protein enzymes and it's chopped up into small amino acid pieces and then we absorb it after that. So just back to the, the collagen, um, bone broth has become popular in recent yes. years, the, the whole food advocates, which is uh, understandable. Yes. Do you think some of the 
some of the or a majority of the benefits from bone broth is because it contains collagen uh, so when you look at obviously if you you make a bone broth there will be collagen in it but it's in, it's a very unreliable source but there still will be some collagen in it right the popularity of the supplements the collagen supplements is that you you get a defined amount you, you know that there's collagen in there but you of course you can get it from your diet and if you eat a lot of um, you know offal if you eat fish skin you'll be getting collagen in that but yeah. you, it's hard to say how much we get hence the popularity of the supplements to get an extra dose of it in a very easily mm. accessible way so most of the collagen supplements on the market are hydrolyzed all that means is that the very long thousand 1067 amino acid chain protein that is collagen has been sort of pre-digested into smaller pieces make it very dissolvable and in theory a bit more uh, absorbable but gelatin in the end will still be digested by our protease enzymes and you'll still absorb gelatin if you take that right so what about does it get broken down to collagen uh, sorry the yeah this co- the collagen to the individual amino acids and therefore is it can you just get those amino acids from other protein sources or can you could people just supplement the individual amino acids what is there some sort of magic around collagen so this is this is where if you look at the research and we'll talk about that very soon about looking at the benefits what is a plausible mechanism that if you take collagen it should do something different to your skin than any other protein source because if you read article after article that that denigrates collagen as having no benefit what they'll all say is that the collagen is chopped up into individual amino acids and we absorb that and to our body the source is no different to if you ate a steak or a kidney bean or any other source of protein that's not true because it's not digested into individual amino acids yes it's mostly single amino acids but we also get these di and tripeptide units which can be absorbed and the key thing about collagen that's different to any other protein is this hydroxyproline amino acid. You'll only see it in dietary collagen. In the body, that these little peptides are not inert. They can actually act as signaling peptides. They can bind to receptors on fibroblast cells in our skin. And our fibroblasts are the collagen and elastin factories. There is a plausible mechanism to explain why eating collagen should have a biological effect because of these di and tripeptide units which are unique to collagen because of this hydroxyproline. If not, if I knew, didn't know any of that research, if that didn't exist, there shouldn't be a reason why collagen should have any benefit compared to any other protein source. But with that plausible mechanism that's been explored, that opens the door to explain why many clinical trials seem to show a benefit of taking oral hydrolyzed collagen in improving skin health. And that is the key mm. link. It's the di and tripeptides that contain hydroxyproline, which can have receptor signaling activity. Right. So yeah. interesting. Yeah, just yeah. to underscore that, that the collagen you ingest doesn't add to the, doesn't sort of settle in your skin and add to the your, your total body stores of collagen. It's it's a stimulator to your fibroblast to synthesize its own collagen. Yes, the, at least in only there's only studies. Be, some studies have been done in rats to show that if you if you if you give them collagen that's been radio labeled, 
it does stay in their skin for several weeks. So there is some ah. direct movement of the collagen, but what I would see is mostly it's a signaling effect. And if you think about it from a biological point of view, if we, if we have a wound, if we have damage to our skin, we break down collagen. The circulation of these signaling peptides in the body is a signal for the body to produce more collagen. If this is breaking down, it's happening internally. So to take it externally mm. just gives a bit of a boost to that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. That's fascinating. Okay, so the, the reason I, I, I laboured on that is because let's look at the research now. What struck me was not only that it, that it works reasonably well for elasticity and so forth, but the doses are quite low. I, I assumed it'd be like scoops and scoops and tens and tens of grams, but um, yeah, can you describe, let's dive into the studies now and, and yeah. touch upon the, the dosing. So I just, when I first looked at this research a few years ago, I was one of those skeptics that, that you see in the, in the newspaper articles going, collagen's a waste of time. It's just, it, so it becomes an amino acid soup that it's going to have no effect on your body. And yet when you look at the clinical trials, they seem to consistently show a benefit. And yet in all those clinical trials, they outline this mechanism in the introduction. It's not hidden secret knowledge. We, we know about these signaling peptides. So there's now been, what I'm aware of, 22 randomized controlled trials. There's been one meta-analysis published that I know of, and there's one I've actually conducted myself. And they show a consistent effect of taking hydrolyzed collagen on visual appearance of wrinkles, of collagen density, of skin elasticity, and hydration. And that is just consistent across all of the trials. And they are not all funded by the collagen industry. There are many of those trials that have no funding. So the, the normal objections to this research is there's no reason why collagen should, should work and that's all funded by big collagen supplements. I have no skin in the game. Do you see what I did there with that little... <laughs> <laughs> and when I looked at the it research, and I'm collagen. a researcher who's very, very you know, um, critical of research, I've gone, this is actually, there's something to this story. You're seeing these consistent effects combined with all the anecdotes you hear of people taking it and finding that it really helps, helps with their, their skin appearance, potentially helps with joint pain. And I'm a career scientist and it's one of the few supplements I take based upon the research that I, when I look at it. All for something that's a food that's naturally present in our diet. And the doses used, you can see benefits you know, five grams a day in some of the clinical trials, even less in some of them. Mm. Yeah, it's quite amazing, this benefit. And it, it stands up to the level of a meta-analysis that you can you can do this. And the effect size is medium to large. So we're not talking about yeah. a small effect size, it's a medium to large effect size. It's yeah. enough, and bearing in mind, this is anecdotes. I'm, generally, I'm a scientist, but I have a lot of people yeah. tell me when they start taking it, they can see and sense a benefit and they're seeing some improvements in it. And yep. combine that with the clinical trials behind it to the level of meta-analyses and a plausible biological mechanism, I'm not negative on this supplement. Like I'm on many supplements. I'm very <laughs> negative on many supplements, but not this one. I think there's, there's yep. something yep. worth trying, um, experimenting with yourself if you think you might get some benefit from it. Yeah, absolutely. So just to, did you mention, so collagen is mostly type one and three? So Correct, you, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, but there is some benefit to bone and, and joint health as well what are some of the other benefits of uh, supplemental collagen yeah so most of the researchers use type 1 and type 3 combined there has been some that's used just type 2 and the idea is 
in theory that if you just use type 2, it should target it just to more cartilage. So that's going to be, you know, osteoarthritis would be, would be a classic one. There's been about five or six trials in this area that seem to show a benefit in pain reduction for osteoarthritis. The evidence isn't as great as to do with skin health, but there is, there is evidence that it's of some benefit. There's also been two trials done in athletes, and obviously athletes are always dealing with bone and joint pain, showing some alleviation of that joint and bone pain. These, these are randomized control trials. All these trials I'm speaking about are randomized control trials, and they're all blinded. Because if you give someone something and tell them it might help with your pain, They'll believe it. Yeah. These are blinded yeah. Yeah. trials, and that is so important in all these trials. They're not observational. They're RCTs, and almost all of them are double-blinded. Even the researchers who are doing the evaluation don't know what supplement the person's been yeah. given, being it collagen or is it just a generic you know, whey protein or, or something. Yeah. yeah. So for the uh, commercially available collagen out there, the, the general uh, ones you get from, say, health food stores or whatever, yes. um, do, does a consumer need to be savvy on looking for type 1, 3, 2, or by default, is if it's collagen, it's typically the, the type 1 and 3? Yeah, if they don't specify it, it's safe to assume it's going to be type 1 and type 3. The two the two major sources, or well, the most popular source is marine collagen. So it can, fish scales is the most common source, but it can come from um, things like uh. jellyfish and so on. But also you'll find bovine. Typically, yeah. if it's type 2, it, it will label it as type 2. I Generally, I find that a bit more expensive when I've seen that marketed. Right. Uh, chicken, I think chicken, it's chicken isn't generally the source for type two collagen. So generally, if you if you yeah. see it labelled as type two, it should be targeted more towards cartilage. Although when I look at the differences between them, there shouldn't be a, a strong reason why type two yeah. should only be of benefit for cartilage and type one and three just for skin. There, sh- yeah. there should be a lot of overlap between them. So okay. fish, chicken, uh, and bovine are the main sources and forget about anything you see of vegan collagen it's not it's not but it doesn't contain any hydroxyproline it's just a an amino acid soup with a bit of vitamin c and zinc thrown in there plants that make yep. collagen there is gm there is some gm collagen but that's very expensive and it's not on the market and gm collagen right. is probably not something vegans will be you know on board about so anything yeah. labeled as vegan collagen uh you're being scammed okay if you <laughs> unfortunately um if you want benefits it has to be animal source you can't get sure. collagen from anywhere else that's just yeah. a com- comment on the science not someone's ethical view of if they are vegan yeah. or, or eat animals yeah. if it's collagen it has to come from an animal and just out of curiosity uh you mentioned the dye and tripeptides that seem to have the biological activity out of interest is there any others around that that's caught your attention whether plant animal um that does seem to have a, a profound physiological effect anything to Look out for in the future. Uh, no, they're the main ones that, that's attracted my attention at the moment. But it certainly just makes you realize that with the, with what we eat, it's not as simple as just protein becomes amino acid and so on. There's a yeah. lot more going on. So considering this happens with collagen, it could happen within many other proteins. But the, the key thing is that the collagen protein is unique to start with because of this hydroxyproline. Yeah. You have to have that. You don't get that in, in other protein sources. Interesting. All right, well, let's shift gears a little bit. There's a couple other areas we want to look at with nutrition that there is some research on. And broadly speaking, the carotenoids, there is some evidence in like 
photo protection preventing yes uh, or attenuating at least the the damaging effects of, of UV rays. Um, so yeah, can you can you describe maybe broadly the mechanism there and like carotenoids? It's quite a, a big family. Yeah. Why why are they having an effect? And this is a fascinating area when I, when I first looked at it, because we all know if you eat enough carrots, you do turn orange. It's not an old wives' <laughs> tale. Uh, so carotenoids are a pretty big family. There's about 600. I'm not going to talk about all of them today, just the key <laughs> ones. The ones that actually can be converted to vitamin A in our body, they're called, um, they, these are called pro-vitamin A carotenoids. They are beta-carotene, and everyone knows about beta-carotene. It's, it's what makes carrots orange. But there's also alpha-carotene and another one called beta-cryptoxanthin. So they can be turned into vitamin A. Then there are other types of carotenoids which can't be made into vitamin A, but they have biological effects in our body. Uh, and the key ones here are molecules like lutein and zeaxanthin and lycopene. So you pick up any supplement that's for eye health from a pharmacy and will likely contain lutein and zeaxanthin because they are generally they are found in our retina, in our eyes. That's where they're stored. Whereas lycopene, lycopene gives the redness to tomatoes and watermelon, and that is a carotenoid, and that will be scored into the skin. So beta-carotene, lutein, zeaxanthin, lycopene, you'll find lycopene in red-colored foods such as tomatoes, red, uh, watermelon, lutein and zeaxanthin in green leafy vegetables, so it's going to be kale and things like spinach, whereas beta-carotene and these other carotenes you'll find in carrots but you'll also find in green leafy vegetables so even though they're orange all that chlorophyll in green leafy vegetables right. masks the color so I the key so, foods yeah. are pumpkin sweet potato green leafy vegetables are probably probably the big ones as far as the carotenoids plus your tomatoes tomato pastes and so on for your lycopene they're, they're the big players in this space and all of those colored pigments when you eat them because these are fat-soluble vitamins, they are stored in our body fat and they are stored in the subcutaneous layer of the skin. Hence why, if you eat lots and lots of these, particularly carrots, you do start turning orange. It's harmless, Mm. but that orange color is because of the storage. Meaning, if you eat a reasonable amount of these or you take supplements, you can get some small level of sun protection because the carotenoids first of all absorb uv light so they actually act as a barrier plus they reduce the production of free radicals so these reactive oxygen species and they have anti-inflammatory effect and there's been 25 intervention studies i'm aware of that use lycopene beta carotene the tnz azanthin another one called astaxanthin and they seem to consistently show a benefit in um improving the amount of uv light a person can tolerate before they get burnt before they sunburn as well as improving levels of oxidation in the body so there seems to be a very real effect big disclaimer this these are not spf 50 (laughs) all right a a bag of carrots is not spf 50 (laughs) but it gives some small level of protection and there's been estimates that put it at a spf factor of four Right. And the benefit, of course, if you have a diet high in carotenoids, it's it's there for life. You're getting 24-hour, 24-7 protection or some level of protection from UV light. As well as the lutein and zeaxanthin, they are stored in our eye. They, are, they can help protect against blue light. A lot of interest right. in blue light, of course, all our devices now have 
maybe blue light filters to reduce the amount of blue light our eyes absorb and that's thought to be important in our circadian rhythm but that blue light can also do damage to our retina and one of the reasons why at least clinical trials show that supplementation with lutein and zeaxanthin can help reduce the progression of AMD which is age-related macular degeneration to give some protection from this high energy visible light which is blue light so it's a pretty big lot of stuff I've just gone over there but the key thing is lots of these carotenoids are stored can be stored in the skin they offer some degree of protection against UV light and oxidation and it contributes to our body's defense mechanism it is not to replace a hat and a t-shirt and sunscreen it's there to augment and support and yeah. our diet with all of these foods all pretty healthy foods I'm speaking about if you're eating lots of these all the time you will build up this natural level of carotenoids in your body which can visually be seen as well if you eat enough yeah of them. yeah 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 I don't know if you, I think it's just a theory it might have been challenged disproven but there is some theory about uh, carotenoid levels and perceived attractiveness they've done studies where people have um, had various levels of carotenoids and it's yep. thought to be like an evolutionary marker of nutritional status and health it's fast there's been two <laughs> trials looking at this showing that if people have a fairly poor diet and they eat more of these foods you know a couple of hundred grams per day of you know carrots broccoli um, spinach sweet potato tomato paste and so on within four to six weeks there are some there are visual changes in their color and this is the the idea that for someone who looks healthy, they probably are, part of that reason we subconsciously think of someone as being healthy, considering they've got light skin, is because of this red-orange glow that they have from these carotenoids. And there's been several studies showing that, that blinded observers rate people as more attractive when they have this slight glow to them. And it's not just in fair-skinned individuals, even a dark-skinned person. Mm also will show, give, give off this tinge in their skin. So we pick up on this as humans without knowing, well, gee, that person's been eating a lot of carrots. You don't, <laughs> if you go overboard, you will turn orange. But yeah, just yeah. eating plenty of these in your diet, it just gives that a healthy glow. So yeah, from a cosmetic yeah. attractiveness perspective, you do seem to look better to other people, which is great. Who doesn't want to look better? At the same time, getting some level of UV protection. If you're protecting yourself against UV light, that means it's going to be less skin damage, less photoaging, less collagen breakdown, and that will help keep your skin healthier for longer. So it's a great story. In the end, what is, what's it saying? Eat your fruit and vegetables and eat plenty of different colors because the yeah. colors will be yeah. an indication you're eating these carotenoids. Yeah. I think you probably finished a lot of your podcasts with the, <laughs> that message, don't you, about <laughs> eating lots of colors and so forth. Uh, I just want to pick up on that thread you mentioned about the, the damaging effects of, of sunlight. And this is probably more just sort of speculative and certainly yes. not any health advice. But like many things, if you look online and social media, it, it, things tend to be, you know, binary and polarized. Yes. That if you go out in sun, you're spontaneous combust and <laughs> need to wear, you know, SPF at nighttime versus some the more radicals that think all you need to do is eliminate seed oils and you can... You know, it's, it's all just land, this one land. little hack and that's it. All of health is that's... Yeah, it, it's yeah, all to yeah. do with that, yeah. And like many things, there's probably the truth somewhere in the Correct, middle. And yeah. I'm just curious on... And I know there's nuances around skin type and latitude and so forth, but... And this is yeah maybe where nutrition can help. Like, 
I don't know, how do you sort of frame up the? There's got to be benefits to, to UV as well. I think of they're course, starting yeah. to realize that maybe um, UVB, and particularly blue light during the day, helps with attention. Yes. Um, maybe nitric oxide production and blood yeah. pressure. Um, maybe you want to comment as well, like vitamin D. The clinical trials don't seem to be as profound as the observational studies Correct. are looking at. Yeah. And is maybe vitamin D, yes, it's got benefits, but is that a proxy for sun exposure? So exactly right. Weighing all this up. Yeah, there's <laughs> a lot there. Do you have any comments? So we're, we are Australians. We are in the skin cancer capital of the world, and there's a good reason. There's a strong link between the, the, the sun and skin cancer. Well, we know that. So we've had a generations of people who have been you know, had very strong messages about avoiding the sun. And there is some pushback against that, not that they're denying the science. It's about acknowledging that there is, there is a benefit to some level of skin exposure for health. But you don't want to go so far. So there we, obviously we need enough skin to make vitamin D. 80% of the vitamin D in your body comes from the sun and the other 20% is from your diet. So that, that is, is vitally important. But there's all these other additional benefits that sunlight may have. So we've gone probably one to one extreme that we try and avoid the sun completely. But if you look at the messages from the, 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 the Cancer Council, even in the middle of summer, exposing the hands and arms and face for 10 to 15 minutes maximum is enough to produce sufficient vitamin D. Mm. So we do need some small amount of sun but if we avoid it completely, there may be some adverse problems, not just to do with vitamin D, but these other fascinating areas that we're seeing linked metabolically with the effects of our the sun on us. And nitric oxide is one of them, for example. That's a vasodilator, it's an insulin sensitizer, and maybe the sun has some role to play in production of that too. So what this podcast is not giving people advice about being sun smart. That that's really important. It's not about throw out your sunscreen and just eat carrot. It's <laughs> it's being sensible in all of those approaches, but acknowledging that some small amount of sun is going to be good for us, and there's a danger if we just go in one particular direction of avoiding it completely. Yeah, well said. Yeah. All right, and now let's let's explore quickly some health uh, skin conditions. Again, where it, uh, there is a, a link and maybe some um, I don't want to say misinformation, maybe some old views perhaps or maybe maybe it's it's still true around acne and what i'm trying to refer to is there's a, a long standing interest in acne and glycemic load and this is something yeah. you've been looking at glycemic load for i think a while so first of all maybe again there's a, a nice sort of mechanistic rationale with yes. um, hormones and so forth so can you maybe frame up the 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 rationale and then we can like look at the research and see what the clinical trials have unfolded. Yeah, so it's important to have a good rationale, and the story here seems quite plausible. So, acne uh, develops when uh, you you get a buildup of sebum, which is an oily substance that our skin produces, and that's there to help protect our keep moisturize our, our skin and our hair. But what happens is around the hair follicles, you get a buildup of this sebum, as well as a buildup of dead skin, and that can block these pores. And if you block these, these pores around the skin follicles, you, you get acne forming, combined with inflammation that can happen from uh, bacterial contamination. So otherwise fairly harmless bacteria, they can, contamin they can be, contaminate this little site and that can cause the, 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 the pustulas and nodules and cysts and so on. And why do we see it mostly in teenagers? It's because there's hormonal changes going on at this time which increase the production of sebum. And that then 
is the whole process. Now, one of the things that can exacerbate it, at least in theory, is high levels of insulin. So if with high levels of insulin, that can in, uh, worsen acne by increasing proliferation of these keratinocytes, which produce keratin. Also, uh, insulin can stimulate production of androgens. So these are hormones which can also increase sebum production, as well as production of growth factors as well, which can increase uh, really just a growth of the cells. So combined with hormonal effects to do with puberty, and to do with potentially dietary effects which can affect insulin levels, the theory goes that if you modulate insulin levels with a low GI diet and a low glycemic load diet, that may help benefit acne. So any questions on the theory? That's the background. Yeah, no, it makes makes a lot of sense that, yeah, would suggest that a low carbohydrate or a low GI diet could be useful in monitor uh, to in managing acne so yeah what's some of the the research shown when they apply this in clinical trials so i'm aware of five clinical trials that have used high and low gi diets in, in people with acne uh two so one of them only looked didn't look at acne it only looked at um androgen levels two of the trials couldn't find a benefit and two could show a benefit Although one of the trials that showed a benefit of a low GI diet, they actually saw greater weight loss in the low GI group, which is a major confounding. Because if you look at all the evidence of GI and weight, there's not much of a link there. It's a very weak link. So something different was going on in this trial. So when I look at all I've gone, looks interesting. You know, it's not a, not certain, but maybe in some people, a low glycemic index and a low glycemic load diet may help with acne but I wouldn't call it the smoking gun for causing it and also as the best way to treat it because there's many different dietary factors linked with acne or with varying degrees of evidence, but there is no solid definitive proof that, that one diet hack is going to clear up acne for everybody. It's going to be very individualized and low GI, low, low glycemic low diet could be one of those. Confounded by the fact if you make a change based upon GI, you could be changing your diet quality as well. And that also can have an effect. So it's a bit messy, the research, but the randomized controlled trials maybe indicate a benefit, but it's certainly not saying it's harmful, but if there's a benefit there, it's not going to be universal for everybody. Okay. And what about micronutrients, vitamin A, zinc, and so so forth? Any any good evidence there for... Acne? Uh, now, vitamin A is an important one. If you look at one of the, the treatments for, for acne, um, mm. topical vitamin A, absolutely, yeah, for sure. And also there's oral vitamin A that's used. So that seems to show some benefit. That's a marker for the, the role of vitamin A to do with cell growth and differentiation. When you're talking about other nutrients, it's very mixed if, if things like zinc or probiotics. I mean, probiotics, there should be a, a benefit for it in theory, but there's just really yeah. no clinical trials out there to actually trial it so yeah yeah in theory it might be of benefit but there's not much evidence at the moment to say yes or no it's going to help so lots of potential things someone could be doing but i would say none of them is going to be a guaranteed way to to treat it so really it's going to be come down to healthy eating Uh, certain topical agents so cleansing agents vitamin a if if um prescribed for you by a by a doctor as well so it can be oral or or topical um really the topical one seems to work really well but of course we're getting into pharmacological effects here not not diet when you when you're using these sorts of agents yeah 
Thank you. And I'll just pick up on that thread you mentioned, probiotics. One last area I wanted to explore is you've looked a, a bit at probiotics and its role in uh, eczema. Yeah. yeah. So this is a really interesting area. This probably ties in with the acne one that in theory probiotics might help with acne. We're just waiting for clinical trials. But the most common form of eczema, very common in children, but also carries over into adult, is atopic dermatitis. So atopia means it's allergy, dermatitis means inflamed skin. It's the most common form of eczema. It presents where there's there's a skin breakdown, the skin becomes dry, it becomes flaky, it becomes itchy and inflamed, and we all know what, what that looks and, and feels like for many people. So very common. The link with the gut microbiome and probiotics comes from the fact that even though all of the, the popular media and, and health professionals are interested in the gut, the gut, we have a skin microbiome. We have a nasal microbiome, we have an oral microbiome, there's a vaginal microbiome. All of these are important ecosystems. And at least in people with, with eczema, we do notice differences in their skin microbiota as well as their gut microbiota. So there's a crosstalk between them and if you talk about the microbiome, inflammation comes to mind. So there could be some dysbiosis occurring that may exacerbate eczema in this case. So the question is, what happens if you take probiotics? There's been quite a lot of research in children and also in adults. And the summary is when I look at the research, it seems quite positive that it might offer a benefit in some people particularly the bifidobacteria and lactobacillus because they are, they are key anti-inflammatory bacteria. That's, it's a very general, general term here, but they are certainly... Yeah. If you want to label bacteria as good, not so good, it's the bifidos and lactobacillus that certainly belong in the probably good for us bacteria. So they may have a benefit in reducing the pathogenic bacteria. They may have a benefit in producing things called short-chain fatty acids, which have anti-inflammatory effects. And it's not only in the gut, but also on the skin as well because of the crosstalk. So that may be explaining why probiotics could be of benefit in atopic dermatitis and maybe even other skin conditions, hence the acne link. For someone that, that wanted to trial at home, you can walk into a supermarket and into a chemist and you can buy these probiotics. In the end, you can trial yeah. it yourself. You know, that's fairly, fairly safe, innocuous things to take and it might give some, some symptom relief. From these conditions yeah yeah and i suppose just finally the other side is and um again probably individualistic but food allergies and is there any much of a connection there between food allergies and dermatitis like uh, uh yeah uh with with atopic dermatitis a lot of the the rise in cases of it is thought to be coming from environmental influences right yep so a lot of that is perhaps yep. our modern environment and so on that's where i'm seeing most of the the link there may be dietary links and if it's dietary it could be related to the effect of diet on our gut microbiome which yeah, of course okay. is going to then affect our skin microbiome so it, it, it certainly is all yep. interrelated and, and what do we know about our yep. diet in the last couple of decades in a typical western country like australia it is getting more processed and it contains less prebiotics so that certainly will affect our gut microbiome. So a very plausible yeah. connection between diet and um, allergy and skin health. Yeah, brilliant. All right, well, it's been a, a great tour of the skin. You always communicate so well and elegantly and, and with so such great detail. 
Uh, I want to thank you for your time, Tim. Before we head off, what's you always seem to come up with interesting and novel topics. So I think the latest one was food porn, which what, what I really enjoy is uh, the fact that sometimes the research disproves your views that showing off all the, the food that you eat yes <laughs> almost pathological but it, there could be some health benefits to it you want to give us a quick update on uh, that absolutely uh, what i learned was that doing a, a podcast on food form which has been around on social media for many years i i don't partake in it i i'm a food scientist not a foodie but if in theory the idea was that if people are doing all these glamorous meals on instagram presenting it it might be a disincentive for people to to eat healthy because it's more unattainable but what the research shows is that there can be a benefit if it's fairly healthy food presenting in a very attractive way, that actually may promote positive dietary change yeah. as well. So it can be a double double edged sword. But you know, food food yeah. porn you probably wouldn't dismiss it as a as a fad or a trend. It can be useful for health promotion purposes. But I also learned when you send out emails with the word food porn in the title, you get a lot of spam people block the, block you with their spam filters when I did promotion of that right. podcast. So that was my okay. important learning yeah. from that podcast. There you go. <laughs> uh, so what's on the what's on the horizon? Any other interesting topics? What's in the pipeline? Uh, oh, and how did you come up with your ideas? Like I've got I've got some podcast ideas and... coming up to do with nutrition and fertility, which is a fascinating area. There's a lot of professionals now just really basing their, their career and their expertise around nutrition and fertility. So I'm going to start exploring some of the research in in that particular area to see what that has to say to do with for women who are trying to conceive, but also for men, for their sperm health as well. So I think that's, ah, nice that's worth a couple of podcast episodes exploring that topic. Excellent. So Thinking Nutrition, a weekly podcast, nice sort of short, sharp sound bites. Yep, 10 minutes and you're done. Whatever topic I'm presenting for that week or that fortnight, uh, Thinking Nutrition, you'll find that wherever you get your podcasts. But I'm easy to connect with. You can find me at my website, thinkingnutrition.com.au and links to all my social pages are there. Excellent. Yeah, just to repeat, thanks, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Always great chatting to you, geeking out. And yeah, maybe we can catch up and deep dive into another topic in the future. Wonderful. Great chatting with you today, Nathan. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice. 